welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is, of course, Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, things may have gotten worse for Disney, which has been in the news for its company's disagreements with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, if you're listening and hadn't heard, Florida passed a law attempting to revoke Disney's special status with regard to how it uses its land at, at Disney World. But that is now old news because more recently, Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri has introduced a bill to impose a 56-year term on all of Disney's copyright protections, even those w- with longer terms. Now, Richard, I want to know what you think about retroactive laws on copyrights and where we should, uh, where we should change things for the future. Okay, I think that's a very fair question. I think the answer is you don't start with retroactive law on copyrights. You start with retroactive laws generally. And by and large, I think there should be a very strong presumption against doing those. And I think that also applies with respect to grants that have already been made. So if you gave a government lease of a plot of land for 99 years, and then the government said in the 50th year of the term, we want this lease to be only 48 years, so we're throwing you off right now. And by the way, we may even sue you for the two extra years. That I think would be regarded in connection with a particular transaction as clearly unconstitutional. And I think exactly the same thing should apply with respect to any grant that is given by government. Uh, So I think what happens is when there have been bad grants, they've not been challenged at the time of their creation, you're stuck with them. And at that particular point, the government just has to wait for them to expire, even though it is perfectly within its powers to say that with respect to future grants, whether they be of land on the one hand or of copyrights on the other, we're going to cover them to a much shorter period of time typically something like 14 years with another renewal period of 14 years was sort of the original plan. And so I I think this is a terrible idea. I think the second part, which is also a terrible idea, is trying to do this with respect to a single target. Uh, That is, if you're talking about things that look like bills of attainder, these are particular criminal statutes which isolate a single person, then invent a law and give him a separate trial under the law that you've just invented. And these things are prohibited under the Constitution, both for federal and for state parties. In this particular case, singling out one firm for this particular treaty and doing it because of obvious political motives strikes me as being the worst kind of grandstanding. And I think that Senator Hawley, who regards himself as a champion of the rule of law, to seriously rethink the way in which he wants to do all of this. So I think the real questions that we want to ask is how should we think about copyright terms generally, about their original grant, about their renewal, and about the length of these things. And this, in fact, um, if you're curious, goes back a very, very long time, uh, because just as their complexities with respect to the grants of land and railroad easements and things of that sort, so it is with respect to patents and copyrights, both of which require grants from the federal government in order to be effective. Uh, There's a lot of constitutional and institutional complexity associated with both issues. Can you take us take me through the the history of copyright changes? Because it hasn't always been this, I think, what, 95-year term right now? Um, I mean, how, how often has it been extended uh, and, and why? Okay, well, it turns out the first statutes that we have on this subject are a pair of statutes. There's the Copyright Act of 1790, very early on in congressional history, the first section. And then there's the Patent Act 
at the same time. And both of them try to set up arrangements whereby the United States are going to give various kinds of grants. And the terms in these cases were generally fairly short. I think for the copyrights, it was 14 with a 14 year renewal. Um, I won't swear to that because I haven't gone back and looked at the numbers, but it's far, far shorter of anything that starts to happen today. Um, and the theory was that what you have to do is to give people an inducement in order to create the particular work. And unless you give them some protection against being copied, uh, what will happen is one party will incur the fixed cost very extensive in order to create the patented work of a, a copyrighted work and then somebody else will be able to reproduce that thing at marginal cost today the cost of reproducing something which has been copyrighted is virtually zero now, you could take photographs of it you could download it on disk and so forth and so if i were so inclined i could take either the wall street journal or the new york times and i could reproduce the whole thing with a button at virtually zero cost and disseminate it throughout the world. No system is going to be stable if it allows all of that stuff. And so the patents and the copyrights <coughs> essentially do it. Now they differ in a certain key respect. With respect to a patent, the, the protection is strict, meaning if you infringe, cross the line as defined by my patent application, I can stop you whether you imitated or copied me or not. With a copyright, it turns out that you have to prove that somebody had actually knew about the thing when they started the copyright. And the question is like, why do you want this particular difference to take place? And I think the theory is that with respect to certain kinds of things, certain combinations of words, independent invention, I think is sort of rare. And so you want somebody to prove the fact that the thing was copied. With inventions, they often is the case if you don't get protection against somebody else you could get two patents on the same apparatus one will be first the other one will not be essentially a copy of it and what will happen is you would have to protect both of them and if you want to do this right generally it's the winner across the post that gets it first so there are these things and they're very different schemes for their operation uh, the question then arose is can you start to extend the terms of either of these things and this was an issue that was raised you know some years ago it was to the Copyright Term Extension Act, uh, but it's an issue that goes much further back than that. So very early on, it turns out that somebody had a patent for some kind of a farming device. I don't remember what it was. And what happened is the patent expired. And then uh, what happened is the fellow goes back to the federal government and says, could you give me a new patent on the old device? And will you make this patent so strong that I can even sue for current infringement, somebody who can basically use my device after my patent expired and is using it today. <clears throat> and it was decided by the Supreme Court in what I regard as a fairly horrible decision uh, to say that you could in fact give Congress the complete powers to how and when to extend these particular terms so that the regrant of this thing would be valid under a so-called rational basis test of constitutional law. Uh, this then gets carried fast forward, and we see that there are lots of issues associated with modern kind of copyrighted information. And it's important to understand that for patents, uh, a long-term protection of a patent is usually not critical to the operation of a business because most technical patents become obsolete fairly quickly and they're displaced by a new technology, which is better. Uh, but if you happen to have, say, the Disney franchises on Mickey Mouse and similar situations or any literary work, uh, their value does not depreciate over time, typically. If they're great to begin with, they're great later. I mean, people don't stop playing Mozart symphonies because the man died 200 and uh, 29 years ago. 
whatever it was, 231 actually, um, they don't stop. And so they're very valuable. And so what Disney tried to do amongst other companies was to get term extensions for their valuable properties, most notably you know, Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and so forth. And there was a question, some resistance on the part of many people to doing it. Uh, the view taken prominently by my friend Larry Lessig was that this is sort of taking something which belongs in the public domain and giving it to a private party, which is a flat breach of the public trust doctrine, a position with which I agree. Uh, but what happened is Congress says, look, we're under a lot of pressure for this. The Europeans are extending their copyright protection. If we don't extend our copyright protection, we can't make a reciprocal deals with them. And so what happens is we have to make these things go much longer. This was challenged constitutionally in a case called Eldridge against Ashruff, uh, then Attorney General, and the Supreme Court, in a very perfunctory opinion by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, essentially said that the Congress has complete discretion over this kind of issue, and so the longer period starts to last. Uh, when Hawley comes in, I think he's correct to say that even if Congress is allowed to create these extensive patents, it's unwise social policy to do so. But I think he's quite wrong to say uh, that uh, it's only Disney whom we ought to go after. I'm not a real fan of Ron DeSantis taking after their land grants because he disagrees with their employment policies or their various sort of views on gender equity. <coughs> and things of that sort. I, I think, in fact, what he should do is to deal with them on those issues. And if he's right, he can prevail. And if he's wrong, he's not. But I'm very much against any government official, either Democratic or Republican, trying to use the collateral power to get rid of this on an ad hoc basis. And what happens is many of the deals that he's trying to upset probably made very good sense. This was not just a question of giving a company a valuable franchise which was a net profit to it, uh, when they created these special zones, as is often the case, what happens is you get a greater autonomy in terms of operation, but you have to bear your own cost. And essentially, if it's a unified plot of land, zoning to regulate interactions between neighbors is not important. And so if you push this off to a private party, it will do a better job managing its own thing than the government will do. The government saves money, or the company makes money, everybody starts to win. And if that is in fact the way this story plays out, it would be a terrible mistake to try to undo a winning organization and structure in order to take political revenge against a particular opponent, however wrong that opponent might be. So I think DeSantis was wrong on this. I think Hawley turns out to be wrong with respect to the way in which this goes. I would support, as I've long supported, a general statute which says that with respect to new copyrights, um, the term should be much shorter. 14 and 14 strikes me as about right. It may be a little bit longer than that. Who knows for sure? Uh, but it seems to me that we want to move in that particular direction and the kind of unsavory politics, the inside politics of making these things longer than they've ever been, uh, which was characteristic with the Copyright Term Extension Act, that ought to be brought to an end. So what you do is you have this very weird amalgam on the one hand in which you have a sensible reform proposal, which is done for the worst of reasons, too narrow perhaps with respect to its scope, and that what we really ought to do is to think this thing back again and understand that intellectual property, whether it's patent or copyright, has the following dual features. Every time you grant a monopoly with respect to the use of some kind of an idea, uh, which is embodied in a written work on the one hand or an invention on the other, you preclude other people from using it, when they could use it at zero cost, 
That is, they can make the thing and still let the other thing make it. It's not like it is with farmland, where if I start to farm the land and I allow you to get on, we can't both be planting crops. Uh, so uh, you have to stop this in order to get the production going. But after a certain period of time, the incentive effects are no longer very important from the ex-ante perspective. And so putting it in the public domain makes perfectly good sense. And the only battle that you have, whether it was copyrights on the one hand or with patents on the other, is what's the duration that you want from these things. Right now, I think it could be argued that patent protection in many cases is too short, particularly with respect to pharmaceuticals, because uh, in order to get these things patented, uh, what you have to do is you have to do the invention, you have to patent them, and then you have to run them through the FDA. And by the time you're done, you get only 11 years out of useful life out of these things in case of blockbuster drugs, which is too short a particular period. And that probably should be lengthened. Uh, but if you're talking about a copyright system, which gives you 50 years after the life of the copyright artist ends, that's just bizarre. I could explain why, uh, but suffice it to say that a copyright has gone much too long and patents has gone somewhat too short. Well, I need you. I do need you to explain to me why that's wrong. Um, let me let me set something up for you here. When uh, Josh Hawley introduces, he said something like, "Listen, Disney has these special privileges, and we need to open up a new era of creativity and innovation." Now, the economic trade-off of granting this this exclusive monopoly right seems very clear to me on the patent side. Especially, I, you know, I picture I picture big pharmaceutical drugs that take billions of dollars. We put a lot of regulations up mm -hmm. to to make them even show up. So, sure, you need to recoup your investment. Copyrights don't aren't that clear to me on 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 the startup cost. Am I really to believe that copyrights are holding back creativity? That if we if we shorten these terms this much, I mean, Richard, why 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 does a copyright even have to expire? Well, I mean, it turns out what happens is you take something like a Shakespeare play or a Mozart symphony or sonata, and you give a perpetual copyright. It means that the use of this thing in the future is going to be restricted by monopoly games. And the question you have to ask is, if you're talking about a distant situation, how much added creativity will take place at the front end, which would justify the massive restriction on use at the back end? And uh, everybody has understood that that back end restriction is very, very powerful. And so you're trying to get the right balance. I think it should be longer for copyrights than it is for patent, because patents essentially are the creation of things out of an organized body of knowledge. And if Mr. Shockley didn't create the transistor in 1946 or whenever it was, somebody else was going to create it in 1952. So you want these things to be short. And indeed, in many cases, the irony is that with certain kinds of software applications and so forth, the useful life of a patented invention is probably only three or four years. So uh, the patent term doesn't mention matter all that much. What really matters is the ability, the moment that you come up with this particular idea is that you can instantly put it into place before it depreciates. But works of art, they just don't depreciate at all. And so at that particular point, uh, if you're trying to figure out what the return stream of income is, uh, clearly, if you can get it a longer period of time, that's going to be a great advantage. Uh, but at the same point, the exclusion is also going to cut more deeply. And so the usual compromise has been uh, we make copyrights longer than patents to reflect the different nature of the creativity. In fact, that is, uh, when you're dealing with a copyright, uh, nobody's going to write the next the same 
Shakespeare Sonata or Rogers and Hammerstein plays. Uh, so it's not going to be overtaken of events. What will happen is new works will come in and they will fill the space so that old works will become in some cases less valuable. This becomes really complicated because there's also the question about derivative works and how well they last. Right now, there's a case in the Supreme Court in which the issue turns out to be whether or not somebody uh, can take a, an artist um, photograph and then use it uh, as the background for a uh, uh, Andy Warhol print worth you know, millions of dollars and do it as fair use without having to compensate the original photographer the work that she had done in the particular case. And this is right before the Supreme Court. And so the issue you want to say is with her derivative work, and assume that it's within the copyright term, is somebody allowed to use her work to create somebody else's work? I think the answer to that question in this case should be no. But if it turns out somebody looks at a photography made by a very distinguished photographer and says, you know, this artist is really good at getting light and dark with respect to waterfalls, that doesn't mean that Ansel Adams, who is an expert at that, can stop another artist from taking another picture of another waterfall some other time. And so you do have these problems about derivative works, uh, but you're talking about very substantial income stream. And at some point, I think you have to protect them in the relatively short run. Uh, but afterwards, um, it becomes, I think, excessive protection. It's a matter of judgment where you draw the line. Currently, it's 50 years plus the life of the um, of the artist who created the particular work. And that's just a bizarre measure. It has no commercial validity whatsoever. Um, if somebody writes something at 23 and lives to 97, uh, it's virtually perpetual. Somebody does a work at uh, 72 and dies at 74, it's much shorter. Why you add the 50 years is a complete mystery. Uh, the correct answer should these things should have nothing to do with the life of the artist. Um, what you do is you take whatever wealth you get and then you monetize it by buying bonds or stocks or annuities or whatever you want. You don't have to say, oh, unless I get this protection for my life in 50 years, I can't take care of my grandchildren. Of course, you can take care of your grandchildren by saving some of the money that you get from the work uh, to the extent that you license to sell it within the copyright period. So that is, I think, is, is the correct type of situation. Um, people have said with copyrights, the argument that is similar to the one you make is a patent excludes somebody from doing a technique. And to do that perpetually is extremely dangerous. But if you give somebody you know, a perpetual copyright with respect to the tale of two cities, it doesn't prevent other people from writing Victorian novels. And so there's no doubt there's less harm to a perpetual copyright than there is to a perpetual patent. Uh, there is a feature in common in both areas, which is things that are called bare ideas are always in the public domain. And so if Mr. Tom Church invents the, the church theorem in mathematics about how it is you combine two numbers uh, and get a third number, uh, if you're allowed to put that under copyright, nobody could use your techniques. And that means when there's a complicated proof, which depends upon uh, 16 or 17 different theorems and lots of other complications, um, uh, you're going to have a constant fight amongst people as to whether or not you engage in one, two, three, or 15 violations of either the copyright or the patent law. That's insane. And so we put things in the public domain just the way beaches in the air are part of the public domain. And you could spend a long time explaining why it is that the parallels that take place between properties in the intellectual spaces have many of the common characteristics of land and water, including this division that takes place uh, between those assets which are always in the commons, that is cannot be privately appropriated, and those which can be taken either by creation 
of an artistic or a patented work or by occupation as with land or by capturing an animal or by seizing a chattel which is unowned while it sits there on the beach. So uh, there are many sort of cross currents in those amongst areas. And the whole thing does require, I think, a fairly comprehensive knowledge about the way in which it begins. And so the criticism of, of Josh Hawley is he's sort of coming in the middle of this particular thing, introducing a partisan element to an area, uh, which should be, I think, solved more objectively and more dispassionately based upon more permanent principles of both common and natural law. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. You can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.